Thank you for joining us for the program, The New Wave of M&A. Our first presenter is Neil Brown, a partner at RPC in London. Advising clients on M&A and general corporate transactions, Neil has a particular interest in corporate deals in the insurance, technology, and retail sectors. Neil advises on M&A, joint ventures, Part 7 transfers, and Lloyd's third-party syndicate management transactions. Our next speaker is Lori Green, partner and co-leader of the M&A and corporate transactions team and co-leader of the cannabis practice at Nixon Peabody in New York. Lori is an experienced transactional business lawyer with over 30 years of domestic and international experience in a wide range of M&A and other business law matters. She represents companies in a variety of regulated and unregulated industries with a particular focus on food, beverage and agribusiness, cannabis, healthcare, energy, and technology. Our next speaker is Paul Jukador, partner at RPC in London. Paul is a leading partner in commercial outsourcing and technology matters who delivers pragmatic and strategic legal advice to complex matters in order to meet clients' commercial goals. Paul is able to guide clients in the development of new products or services in the UK and globally, navigating complex supply chain challenges, entering into strategic alliances, establishing new routes to market, and harnessing technologies to increase competitiveness or efficiencies. Our final speaker is Rick McGurk, partner and deputy leader of the financial services and alternative investment team at Nixon Peabody in New York. Rick represents companies and individuals in complex litigation matters, including domestic and international arbitrations. He is experienced in a variety of high stakes litigation areas, including complex commercial litigation, construction litigation, securities class actions and derivative litigation, intellectual property litigation, and litigation arising from merger and acquisition transactions, including post-transaction valuation and indemnification controversies. Hello, everyone. I hope you're having a great day today. Good morning to those of us in the US. Good afternoon to those of us in the UK and throughout Europe and elsewhere. So in light of the COVID-19 pandemic, we thought it would be fun and interesting to discuss with our Terralex colleagues certain clauses found in M&A and other commercial agreements that are now being scrutinized on by our clients, hopefully with our advice. We have three clauses, or our discussion of these clauses will be based on US and UK law. And the first clause that we wanna discuss is the material adverse change or the material adverse effect clause. MAE or MAX are used interchangeably, at least in the US. So to kick us off here, Nixon Peabody does an annual survey every year of MAC clauses. We've been doing it for 17 years. And in 2019, we found that 98% of M&A deals that we surveyed, which is clearly only a subset of deals, contain MAC or, or MAE clauses, which was up from 89% the prior year. MAC clauses serve two primary purposes. One is to qualify reps and warranties and covenants for purposes of disclosure. And for our purposes of discussion today, the most important is set forth when a buyer can exit a deal between the signing of a deal and closing of a deal. 
they're, they're typically, the MAC clause is typically found in a definition and it's highly negotiated. It sets forth those things that are MACs and more importantly, those things that are not MACs. There's a laundry list now of exceptions that are uh, what I'll call standard and then others that are heavily negotiated. So Neil, how often are you seeing MAC clauses in the UK and have they played out the way you expected them to in light of COVID-19? Hi, thank you very much, Laurie. Thanks for the introduction and hello, everybody. Um, I think um, in answer to that, the second question, have they played out the way we'd expect them to? I think the answer is broadly speaking, yes. Uh, and the first observation to make on that is that um, UK market practice in M&A is generally more seller friendly than it is in US practice. But then taking us to your first question, how often do you, do you see MAC clauses? You, you would see MAC clauses nowhere near 98% on, on UK M&A deals. They would, be, they would be individually negotiated and there would be a lot of transactions where you would expect not to have any MAC at all. So that's, that's I think, sort of the first observation to make. Um, Second observation is that the actual wording of the MAC is not in any way standardized. They are individually negotiated and each one is, is different. But in deals where you do have a MAC, you would generally expect there to be a carve out for um, impacts which are of a general economic nature rather than, uh, rather than impacts which are specific to the target company or target business. So something like COVID-19, which is clearly as general as general can be in the sense that it's affected sort of every business everywhere in the world, it would be surprising to have a MAC which would actually you know, respond and give a termination right in that, in that scenario. Uh, third observation is that you do sometimes see a carve-out to the carve-out, whereby even if the the event giving rise to the MAC is of a general nature uh, and general sort of application, the MAC can still apply if the target business is disproportionately badly affected compared to other businesses in, in the same sector. Um, but again, that's not leading to a large number of deals being terminated because although different sectors of the economy are affected in very different ways. And in fact, there have been some sectors which have, which have done well out of the crisis, you know, like e-retailers, et cetera, uh, you know, food retailers. Generally speaking, within a sector where people have been adversely affected, all people in that same sector have been adversely affected, you're not seeing a great variation in, in, in damaging effects between different companies operating in the same sector. So uh, for all of these reasons, we're not generally seeing um, a large number of deals being terminated as a result of material adverse change um, in the UK. Um, and, and at that point, Laura, I'll, I'll hand back to you because obviously, you know, it, it practice is, is a bit different in, over the other side of the Atlantic. Well, well, thanks. Yeah, it, it is a little bit different, as you mentioned. And I, I think it would be interesting, Rick, for you to talk about while a practice is that virtually every deal includes a MAC clause, it would be helpful, Rick, to give some background on whether in fact they're enforced and are they really working. So sure. maybe you could talk about the Acorn case and the Victoria's Secret case and a couple of other examples that we might have in the US of these clauses being implicated. 
Sure. Thanks, Lori, and, and thanks, Neil. Um, yes, the uh, I, I think broadly the answer to the question of are they being enforced as or are they playing out the way we expected them to is yes here as well. And that is because the way they are expected to play out is to be very difficult to implement to um, actually have an out on a deal. Uh, and that's, that's kind of historically speaking true. MAC clauses are, um, have very rarely been, and in fact, perhaps only once in the Delaware context, have been invoked successfully to provide an out for a buyer. And that was in the Acorn case, which was in, in late 2018. And there, the, um, the, the company Acorn uh, suffered um, incredible losses um, as a result of some um, hidden uh, um, regulatory um, snafus that were reported by whistleblowers. And in a 200 plus page opinion, the Delaware Chancery Court really unpacked the the situation and noted that you know Acorn's business had quote unquote fallen off of a cliff, and so you know and, and not in just a, a momentary period of time and and not um, not in a way that was spread out across the entire industry. It was specific to Acorn, and it was durationally significant. and um, And as I say, that that's a that's a case in which uh, a MAC clause was actually successfully invoked to escape a deal. Now, showing that that was a fairly unique situation or a very unique situation just about a year later in late 2019 in the channel med systems case there was another situation in which there were um, you know regulatory issues that had arisen in the uh, seller's business and the buyer tried to use those as an out claiming a mac had occurred and giving them a, a reason to terminate the transaction the court found there that uh, the possibility that there was a material adverse change was not enough. There needed to be that durationally significant impact on the on the seller's business that would provide the out for the buyer. Um, so th those two cases, I think, give you a good idea that um, going forward, the the kind of the precedent here, and, and precedent is important, obviously, for us lawyers. The precedent here is that. MAC clauses are difficult to invoke. They're heavily negotiated, as both Neil and, and Lori and Lori mentioned, and they are tightly drafted. You know, often going on for you know numerous paragraphs, if not pages, and um, they're typically between sophisticated counseled uh, buyers and sellers, and courts enforce them as drafted. And if there is no out for the buyer, the court is going to enforce the no out. Um, and that and that brings us to a, a recent case, the Victoria's Secret case, in which the buyer actually had uh, the pandemic language inserted in the material adverse change clause. And as a result, um, the buyer was unable to really make a, uh, a strong material adverse change argument and, and, and relied on the ordinary the change in ordinary course of the business as a result of Victoria's Secret closing its stores. Now that case settled and was withdrawn, so we didn't ever get to the, to the point of a decision. Um, but it does show that uh, in situations where you have a properly drafted MAC and it, and it is applied to a unique set of circumstances like the pandemic, it may be possible to to get it to work, but but as I say, the short answer to the question is yes. I think they're working out exactly as as uh, as expected. 
Laurie? One thing that will be uh, interesting, and we'll have this as part of our discussion at the very end, which is the crystal ball question. There, there's a fine point to me that's being put on these clauses based on the litigation that's being brought and the current pandemic, in, including Victoria's Secret. It's also a case brought by Bed Bath & Beyond against 1-800-Flowers, where Bed Bath & Beyond was the seller, and they're trying to force 1-800-Flowers to proceed with the deal. There's really not a discussion right now about the MAC clause, but rather 1-800-Flowers is saying, we just can't close right now. And uh, so, so the, what puts it, what's put into focus for me is, are MAC clauses really playing out the way a buyer thinks they should be playing out? I think the answer to that is no. We could chat about that a little bit later on and wonder whether or not they're really serving a buyer the way a buyer thinks they should be serving them from a risk allocation between sign and close, which is really what the clause is all about. So with that, let's save that to kind of our next discussion and move to fair, uh, force majeure clauses, which are very typical in commercial co contracts in the US. They are absolutely not typical in M&A agreements, but they are in the commercial contracts that are part of M&A deals. There are often many ancillary service agreements, be they transition service agreements, supply agreements, consulting agreements, et cetera. Uh, so they are very relevant for M&A practitioners. And I'm sure everyone knows an M a force majeure clause is a simple contractual provision which excuses performance by a parties to a contract when circumstances arise beyond a party's control. I say simple because the concept is simple, but in practice in the US, again, it, it's a heavily negotiated clause with detailed discussion as to what in fact is beyond uh, a party's control. So with that, uh, Rick, we'll start with you. In the US, has force majeure clauses played out the way we expected them to? So we don't have many, if any, cases that have matured to a decisional stage yet. So we don't have a ton of um, you know, precedent to look at to say, okay, yes, they, they have. But my, my gut sense is, yes, they, they are going to play out that way. And again, as you point out, these are negotiated clauses. They're going to be enforced by the courts in the way that they were written. And if you have or don't have a pandemic as a an event of force majeure, you're, you know, you're either going to be in or out of luck, as it were. And I think that that's going to arise in a number of different ways. I mean, there are, there are force majeure clauses that are written in a, what I'll call an open-ended fashion, where they say a force majeure is the, one of the following events or any similar event. And that's what I'll call open-ended. And, and there, even if you don't have pandemic listed as one of the specific events, you may be able to shoehorn it into or any other similar event. Then there are closed-ended uh, force majeure clauses where it is a, you know, an enumerated list of specific examples or specific instances of force majeure where the courts uh, are going to be you know, effectively stuck in, in looking at this and saying, well, is, is the pandemic one of the, one of the listed uh, force majeure events? If so, then we can consider it. If not, then force majeure may not be available to the parties. So again, I think this is a situation where um, courts are going to be looking very carefully at the, uh, at the clauses in the contract, because remember, force majeure is a creature of contract in the US under most states laws. And if it's not, if it's not in the contract, 
you, you may have to rely on other legal theories. If it is in the contract, you're gonna to have to examine the language closely and make sure that you fall under the specific language because as a, um, you know, as kind of a tool or a mechanism to excuse performance, they're very strictly construed historically and uh, courts generally um, are not going to, you know, read into the contract things that aren't there or read out of the contract things that are there. Let me make, you know, let me caveat that a little bit, of course, because that's what we lawyers do a little bit. Um, this is a, you know, a globally, you know, this is an historic event and judges are people too. And uh, just because, um, you know, a judge wears the, the black robes doesn't mean that he or she is going to ignore the fact that, you know, the world effectively changed from an economic perspective. So I think you will have um, at least a little bit more leeway than you might have in, in, in other circumstances, but, but still, if it's not in the contract, you, you may have some problems. And let me just touch on one thing too, that, that I, I know Lori has been uh, on the sidelines of an argument between a partner of mine and I about the term act of God. Um, many contracts have, you know, a generic act of God exception in the force majeure. And, and what does that mean? Is a pandemic an act of God? In New York, act of God has been interpreted to mean a situation where something happened, you know, earthquake is a classic example, where it was something that was done without the intervention of man in any way, shape, or form. Now, one might say the pandemic is an act of God. But is it the pandemic that's causing the issue, or is it the government reaction to the pandemic that's causing the issue? And depending on how the contract is written and whether or not government actions um, would qualify as a force majeure event, you may be in, in luck or out of luck. And so, you know, carefully look at Act of God and the surrounding clauses to determine whether or not you have coverage under that clause. And if it's if it's the only thing you have, you'll argue it. But uh, I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't bank on it being an absolute home run or or winning argument. If if uh, you know, at the end of the day, it, it's your only argument. Yeah. Now, now others may feel differently, including Absolutely. in our own office. So. <laughs> no, I, I, look, I'm not saying it's not going to work, but I'm just saying that <laughs> most people or many people have been assuming that it's going to work, and I don't think that's a safe assumption. I think you need to make your best arguments and, and make sure that you, you carefully construct that argument in a way that takes advantage of that clause and any of the surrounding clauses to, um, to, put, the, you know, to, to put your best foot forward, as it were. Sure. So, Paul, how about, how about in the UK? Have force, force majeure clauses played out the way you expected them to? And perhaps you could comment on the act of God debate that uh, the Nixon Peabody colleagues are having amongst themselves. I think I have it slightly easier in the UK because while the principles are the same between um, the US and the UK, we, we construct our clauses slightly differently. So there is this reference to act of God, but it tends to be one of the examples of a force majeure event. So your, your concept of sort of close-ended or open-ended, our typical definition is it's something beyond the reasonable control of the parties, including acts of God, fire, pandemic, government intervention. 
So you have less of that, that debate. What was interesting as I was hearing Rick talking is certainly when we've been looking at force majeure clauses, our focus is actually on the government reaction, not on the pandemic itself. If you look at the, the COVID-19 issue and, and the fact that it is life-threatening, it doesn't necessarily make obligations unable to be performed, unless you're sort of contravening like health and safety legislation or something of that nature that would say, actually, you're not, you know, it's illegal to do this or, or, or you shouldn't be doing it. Could you perform your obligation with appropriate safety um, sort of constraints? Now, in some cases, the answer is no, you can't. And therefore, the pandemic itself is the force majeure event. In other cases, the answer is no, actually, the government has told us to stay at home or not to carry out certain activities. And that is the force majeure event. So I think perhaps we have less of that that debate on our side of the Atlantic as to whether it needs to be um, an act of God. Um, what is interesting is when you're negotiating these is these are fairly standard clauses. I mean, I think they can be described quite often as boilerplate. It's pretty regular. They always look broadly the same. Sometimes they're drafted a bit better than others. The, the things that it turns on quite often are things like, do we include government intervention as a force majeure event? That can sometimes be a be, be a debate. I think generally at the moment it's accepted that certainly in the UK the concept of lockdown doesn't itself create a force majeure event. There doesn't seem to be too much sort of debate about that because of the unusual and extreme nature of the, the situation. Um, what is curious though is your original question which is is it playing out the way we thought it would and I think my answer is no and it's not that the clause isn't playing out the way it thought it would it's rather that the the, the customer or the supplier isn't getting the relief that they thought the clause would provide them. So I think the clause is drafted the way it was intended, but the clause was focused on, for example, my warehouse burns down, or there's a, a tsunami that hits the city out of, out of which I produce, not this sort of all pervasive type event. And the things that we're, say, we're seeing that I think are concerning people um, uh, quite a lot are, for example, the supplier might be able to claim a sort of force majeure event in the sense that they can't operate their manufacturing facility, they can't operate their warehouse or their distribution facility, but the customer is still able to fulfill its primary obligation, which is to make a payment. The banking system still works. So the customer is sitting there going, going well, actually, I don't want these, these products or I don't need the service because I've had to shut down, for example, my retail operation. But, but I'm not prevented from accepting this, the, the goods. I'm not prevented from paying for the goods, which is my obligation. So actually from a customer perspective, I think we're finding it isn't playing out the way they, they thought it would because quite often they're very supplier focused. They're not thinking of sort of three steps down the supply chain, that it's hitting sort of all aspects um, of, of one's business. I think the other thing that's interesting also about this is in, in the UK, and I suspect it's the same in the US, we don't really have this concept of like adverse economic event being a force majeure event. You would have to have something equivalent to a MAC clause. So simply the fact that markets have moved or there's been a change in the economic dynamic and the classic being, for example, like a, a um, cost of a raw material suddenly going through the roof. If you haven't built that into your agreement, that's not treated as a force majeure event, even though you might say, look, the way the markets are behaving is, is beyond my control. So for example, a sudden drop off in demand for your products because people aren't out buying isn't a force majeure event. And this, is, this has made it quite interesting, I think, particularly on the customer side as to what they do. And, and what you're seeing therefore is a lot of negotiation, which I think was, was your original concept, Laurie, you know, a lot of negotiation and, and a lot of using of the commercial leverage rather than re relying, relying on the legal rights. 
There's probably two other things also where it hasn't played out. And I think the, these, are, these have been interesting points. The first one is um, the need to issue a notice to, to, to take advantage of the force majeure relief. So quite a lot of the contracts are drafting saying you don't get this relief unless you notify the other side to say that I'm suffering from a force majeure event. And some of them can be quite strict in that you have no right to relief, relief unless you issue the notice. And others are a bit more sort of looser in the sense that they say, if you expect or you suspect you're suffering, you need to let us know as soon as possible so we can mitigate. But the commercial implication of this has been quite interesting. You issue this notice and you sometimes get quite a stark reaction from the other side. The other side, you're busy sort of doing a commercial deal, trying to work out how to adapt it. And suddenly you're having to say, well, by the way, I have to send you this this formal notice and and we've seen reactions from on the other side of the negotiations where they've been quite taken aback by the fact that you're sort of pouring over the the contract i think there's a suspicion you know that you're prepping for either a defense in litigation or a you know some form of claim um in the future and the and the other element that we've also been advising clients on is you have to be careful of force majeure events because one thing we haven't mentioned is they're quite often linked to a termination right certainly in the uk here so if the event continues for a certain period of time it gives the other side a right to terminate. Now, for most deals, you sort of go, well, okay, I'm not too bothered about that. But if you have a long-term supply arrangement, or this is a long-term deal with favorable pricing, you need to claim force majeure. Suddenly, you might be putting yourself in a position where the other side uh, could be using that to actually extricate themselves uh, from that deal. And certainly, the period of time we've seen in the UK, I think we're coming up on eight, 10 weeks. You know, it's probably going to be 12 weeks before even there's a sort of real sort of uh, credible unlocking um, that's quite often the periods of time you see in a force majeure event in the 30, 60, 90 days. And I think that's the bit that when people look at these clauses, the clauses have worked the way they've been drafted, but they're not playing out the way people might have expected. Yeah, it's interesting, Paul. I agree 100% with that. And, and COVID will now be used as the example when negotiating, saying, you know, who would have thought we'd be in a position where we're on lockdown for two months? going on three months, perhaps longer in certain places, or partial lockdown so that either party can't really, one can't perform and the other, to your point, has no need for the goods in the customer supplier arrangement. And I think it will cause a, a very different dynamic in negotiation and, and approach to these clauses. And, and uh, we're gonna get to that a little bit later on. Um, and, and I think the same point can be made for the MAC clauses as well. Yeah, it's interesting because this is such a different dynamic than anyone ever anticipated, rightfully or wrongfully, uh, that it, it's, it will be precedential. Yeah, just to pick up on what you said, Paul, I, I think, uh, and, and I skipped over this a little bit, but certainly what we're seeing first and foremost is you know counterparties trying to negotiate around the situation in some fashion. Um, and you know, running to litigation is, is you know, a bad idea. And sometimes, as you point out, invoking the force majeure clause is, you know, can be a bad idea, depending on you know, the, the various notice and other timing and termination provisions. So we're certainly seeing a lot more and counseling clients a lot more on situations in which they should you know, try and preserve a long-term deal or a good, you know, customer or supplier relationship in, in a way that, you know, gets both parties through this situation without having to, you know, crater a, you know, crater a good deal that may be a good deal for both sides. Absolutely. 
Okay, well, let's move on then to, to the next question, which is what other clauses have been brought into focus as a result of COVID? Neil, you want to tackle that one first? Uh, absolutely. Thank you, Laurie. I mean, I'll, I won't mention force, force majority clauses, obviously, because they've been covered separately. Within, within an SBA, sale and purchase agreement for a business or a, or a company, there are often a variety of other clauses, which, which I've sort of coined the term uh, soft max. They're not max in the sense of there being a material adverse change and that giving right to termination. But are there other clauses where material adverse change might be relevant? For example, under, under an English law SPA, it's fairly common to have a warranty that there has been no material adverse change in the financial condition of the company since the last audited account date. Now, it's possible that that could give rise to a termination right on completion if you have warranty repeated at completion and you have no ability to um, make repeated disclosures at completion and you've agreed that a breach of warranty it should be treated as a representation and gives rise to, to a termination right. So it is possible that such a clause could give you a sort of backdoor, you know, proper hard max. But actually through negotiation, it's more likely that not all of those, those factors would align. And actually that clause would potentially give you a, a, a damages claim at best. And in fact, where you've got um, repeated, where you've got a deal that signed before the COVID crisis fully came to light, hasn't yet completed, um, where you're allowed to make further disclosures at completion, you'd expect that the seller would disclose the COVID situation, therefore you wouldn't even have a, have a claim for damages. Um, and one other sort of clause which has been has been raised, I must give credit to Laurie here, who's the person who first raised this with me uh, when, we, when we were discussing this talk a few weeks ago, but it's, the, it's when you have um, an SBA and you have um, obligations or the conduct of the target business, Signing and completion. Quite typically, an SBA will have a series of positive and negative covenants. Negative covenants in the sense that the, the seller will procure the target company, will not do X, Y, or Z without the prior written consent of the purchaser. But also positive covenants in the sense essentially that the seller will procure that the target company continues to operate in the ordinary course of business up until completion. Um, and those clauses have never, that, that clause has, has never really been too too hotly contested in my experience because it's, it's, it's always been sort of a fairly reasonable thing to agree to and actually the COVID crisis really does actually put a whole new whole new light on that and actually if a business has been forced to close down because of you know lockdown type restrictions is it still carrying on at normally course of business I mean that, that's a very very arguable point um and I think um, well, it'll be straight on to how, how clauses might straight in the future, but I think we'll see those sorts of clauses be much more um, negotiated, much more detailed, and it may well lead to force majeure clauses coming into those provisions within within SBAs. Um, so, Laurie, with apologies for, for stealing one of your points, I'll, I'll hand back to you. Yeah, no, no worries Sorry. at all, but, but I, I absolutely do think that uh, ordinary course will become qualified by force majeure clauses, and that's the way in which force majeure clauses are going to find their way into M&A transaction documents proper. So it'll be interesting. Uh, the next one I draft, I will include it if I'm uh, representing <laughs> the, 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 the seller, certainly. This, um, is, yeah. this is why SBAs keep getting longer. 40 exactly years ago, right. now, now they're this thick, you know. Ever, yeah. Exactly right. So, uh, so I, I, I agree with you in terms of uh, those 
ordinary course clauses. The, the other types of arguments that we're seeing, Rick, maybe you could pick, on, pick up on it, are not actually particular clauses, but principles of law that I know you have as well. But Rick, why don't you touch on them, and then either Paul or Neil might want to comment as well. Frustration of purpose, et cetera. Sure. So, so those are more typical in the force majeure, and I, I guess I'll leave those until we get to that. I mean, I think the uh, the, the ordinary course of business that, that Neil commented on is the one we're seeing most heavily in uh, M&A situations. I mean, I, I touched on briefly the Victoria's Secret case that was, um, you know, a, a situation in which the, the buyer did not have a material adverse change clause and so was relying upon more heavily on the ordinary course, uh, the failure to operate the business in the ordinary course, alleging that, well, Victoria's Secret shut all of its stores as a result of the pandemic, and, and that clearly is not the ordinary course of the, of the company's business, particularly a retail outfit. While that one did not get to a decision and was uh, uh, settled fairly, fairly quickly, um, I think that uh, that ordinary course is going to get a lot more attention going forward, and um, you know, I think, I think that's, that's where, uh, you know, Neil's comment about them being soft max is, uh, is a good one. I think that that's the area you're going to see a lot more litigation in. Yeah. So I, I'd be interested in just having, uh, either Paul or Neil or, or Rick comment on other arguments. And I'll just note what we're seeing when, when you can't, in fact, invoke a specific clause. I think people, <clears throat> including a force majeure clause or a MAT clause, what we're seeing and we're, we've been advising clients on is whether or not they could argue uh, things like impracticability, impossibility, or frustration of purpose, which is in the U.S. a creature of state law and one statute, the Uniform Commercial Code which are again outside of contracts, but we've certainly uh, been advising clients on those fronts. And I know that the UK has comparable uh, law, I'm, I don't wanna say statutes, but certainly theories, I guess is the word I'm looking for. Paul, are you familiar with those theories in the UK? You wanna touch on them? Yeah, no, happy to do that. I mean. We call it, I mean, the concept here in the UK is frustration and it's based on um, English common law. So it's, it, there, are some, there are some statutory implications on that, but broadly it's based on the concepts of wrapping within that, that frustration doc, doctrine, the idea of things being impossible to perform, illegal to perform, um, or sometimes, and, you know, and it's a very high threshold, you would have to have the whole agreement transforms into something radically different than what you originally expected to. And that's different to just simply the deal becomes uneconomic. Un, un, un and so the classic case of something that you might regard as sort of frustration would be, um, let's say sanctions are suddenly imposed on somebody and they say, look, it's actually legal to do business with them. You would say, well, my contract, my transaction has been frustrated because it's illegal to perform. Um, I think what we are seeing is, is certainly in the UK, I mean, you, you, we get a lot of talks from, Barristers who are very interested in the doctrine of frustration are sort of seeing it as, as, as you know, something that, that could make new, new law. But I think in practice, it's going to be really hard for people to invoke, um, in, invoke frustration to say it was illegal, impossible to perform. And certainly, what, what a court might do is say, well, look, do we just simply suspend 
performance for a while while the um while you know while the covid situation sort of plays out and then life will go back to normal and actually it's not sufficient to sort of trip um, trip that threshold. For, for, from an M&A perspective, one thing I was thinking was something more practical, which is, and, and perhaps Neil, you could comment on this, which is in most M&A transactions, you have a sort of signing and completion. And between signing completion, in addition to ordinary course, quite often you have completion deliverables. And certainly I've seen in, in transactions where I've been supporting on the commercial side that people aren't necessarily saying they won't complete, but they're using the concept of, of those deliverables to extend the period of time to completion, take take a longer time, allow the situation to play out so that they're buying the business when life is, you know, quotes unquote, back to normal. Um, but also potentially the way it's drafted, I'm assuming that you could have a scenario where somebody could sort of prevaricate effectively and never deliver up those deliverables, therefore never actually getting to completion and again, sort of creating a sort of max situation as, as it were. And Neil, I don't know if, if, if that's something that you're conscious yeah. of. Yeah, I mean, you, as you said, an SPA, you'll typically have a series of completion deliverables, many of which may be quite sort of anodyne from the board, but it's for target companies. Uh, for example, should be a board resolution, that, that sort of thing. And what you might see is one party who might be looking to go out of a deal because the market's turned, trying to use those as a grounds for termination. Some SBAs do provide that failure by one party to comply with the completion deliverable schedule is does give rise to a right of termination and if that is the case you have a question of proportionality so should a failure to provide a copy you know some sort of copy of statutory register which is not particularly significant should that be a ground to actually terminate the entire transaction and again actually you know the courts will interpret these contracts you know literally so I think for a literal application yes if that's what the contract says that that, that can give you a right of termination I think where you've got one party deliberately dragging its heels and failing to provide its deliverables, um, I think that's going to be a more that's going to be a more difficult ground to try and get out of a transaction. Because I mean, many some SBAs will have a reasonable endeavours obligation to 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 provide deliverables, and therefore if you fail to do that, you're in breach. I think also other other SBAs will just simply provide the completion shall occur and the party shall do this, and if they and if they and if they don't do that again, you know they're in breach, and ultimately. Um, opening themselves up to uh, a specific performance claim in, in the UK. And, and there are examples where the UK courts have um, granted specific performance in order to enforce people to actually go through and complete share purchase agreements. So, so I think that's, uh, uh, Neil, and a really good segue into our last question, which is our crystal ball question. How, how do we think these clauses will change in the future or even stating it a little bit more broadly how do we think M&A deal documents will change in the future and building on what you just mentioned one of the things that I think will occur is when we talk about termination date or completion date today the way a transaction is typically structured you sign on one day and if you need regulatory approval and other things that need consents and the like that need to get completed between sign and close you have a, a, a period of time to do that and you have an outside date by which either party will have the right to terminate unless that party is in material breach of the contract and typically that date does have an extension ability, sometimes automatic, if regulatory approvals haven't been obtained in the US in particular, antitrust approvals 
So the party or parties are still working towards that, but haven't gotten those types of approvals, then uh, there'll be an automatic extension. So one of the things that I think will change is, to your point, both Paul and your point, Neil, is for events like force majeure events, where there are crises that have occurred, that there very well might be automatic extensions of those period of time, periods of time in order to enable completion of the transaction, um, which is not something that I've seen in, in my years of practice. Um, it's only been either mutual or kind of automatic for regulatory type approvals. So that's one thing that I, uh, that I think we'll see. The other is with respect to ordinary course, we already chatted about it. I think we'll see force majeure clauses creeping into those. And with respect to MAC clauses, I, I think that the parties should, whether this happens or not, I don't know, but parties should start taking a step back and asking the question whether or not both from a, a buyer perspective, certainly, but also from a seller perspective, are those clause, clauses doing what the parties intended? Are they giving the buyer the ability to walk away from the deal in circumstances that are uh, very different? So it really is risk allocation. Do you need these heavily negotiated material adverse change clauses, for example, when you've got thresholds by way of either deductibles or, or baskets that are heavily negotiated, can they just serve that purpose? So might a party say, you know what, let's get rid of this whole MAE MAC concept and instead uh, the trigger for closing might be, has the basket been, been met? And if the answer to that is no, well, you've got to close. If it's the, the answer to that is yes, you don't. So I don't know. I think it raises some very interesting questions. I don't exactly know where it will go, but there are some things of that nature when it comes to MAC clauses, certainly, and termination clauses and ordinary course clauses that I, for one, am going to raise. And depending if you're representing the buyer or the seller, you're going to advocate one way or the other. So I don't know. Neil, what do you think about MAC clauses and termination yeah. clauses in particular? Yeah, I think MAC clauses, proper hard MAC clauses, you right to terminate. I think they're going to get focused on much more heavily for the reasons that you give. That's not to say they'll necessarily become more common because sellers may look at them and say, well, actually, we, this is exactly why we don't want to Mac. We don't want to open ourselves up. There is possibility that they're, they're going to be more focused on doesn't mean that that, that that risk allocation that you described between seller and purchaser in the period between time and completion necessarily needs to shift. It just gets brought into more focus. I think the where MAC clauses are included, I think we'll see them becoming drafted in much more granular terms. I think there'll be far more examples of the types of things which are covered by the MAC, because clearly trying to rely on generic descriptions, you know, as Rick, as Rick referred to when he was speaking earlier about things like generic terms like acts of God, can be very, very difficult to apply in practice. So I think we'll see people looking to list out specific examples. And that won't just be pandemics, because Laurie, one of the things you said was that the current crisis is just an example. It's just an example of the sorts of things that can come out of left field and take people unawares. And I think that people will be looking to all sorts of other things. Like, you know, before this crisis hit, people have said, what are the big risks? Well, things like cyber attacks, um, terrorism, were the sort of big risks that might shut down business. Um, and I think, 
I think thirdly, um, it'll, it's just, I think it's going to become even harder to negotiate. Max have become even, they'll become even longer. I mean, Max were never relegated to sort of the border play position that sometimes force majeure might have found its way into. But I think it'll be even more, it'll be even more heavily negotiated. And to the points you've made, more right, sort of ordinary course type person are going to have far more acceptance to them, not just force majeure, but you know, give me anything to comply with governmental or health and safety regulations or 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 or, or, or directives. I think it will. I, th I think it, I think it, I think it will change practice um, going forward for quite a lot. Yeah. Okay, well, if you need that laundry list of uh, exceptions to MAC clauses, just take a look at our survey. Got them all laid out there. <laughs> um, so how about force majeure clauses? Rick, how do you think they're going to change? So I, I would expect them uh, to um, be, uh, I, I don't know if, we, I think it was Paul said, uh, you know, oftentimes you find them at the, end of a, at the end of a contract in a section called miscellaneous. I expect they're going to be elevated a bit uh, from that, given the situations we have, and, and uh, they'll be more part of the deal points as opposed to part of the, you know, quote unquote boilerplate at the end of a contract. And I do think that there will be hard negotiation, negotiations over whether or not pandemics um, are included. And uh, I think there'll be give and take on that. Um, but I do think that they are going to be much more prominent in negotiations going forward. Thanks, Rick. Paul, what do you think? You know, I think that's right. And I think um, there's, there's probably two other aspects that are getting to get more focus. And one of them is how does it play in terms of a customer's payment obligation? We typically, when we have a force majeure clause, has a carve out that says, but this doesn't apply to payment obligations. And, and although actually that probably hasn't been triggered here regardless, the fact that you can pay but can't receive, I think, it gets, gets it into sharp focus. And the other element is going to be a sort of wider concept of what is a force majeure. So it's not just an event affecting me, but it might be an event affecting my whole supply chain and my industry. So certainly from a customer perspective, you'd want it to take a more holistic view, I think, on the, on the impact of that. And whether that is built into a force majeure clause or we start to see a sort of economic change type concept introduced into agreements, which, which is more standard, in fact, in sort of continental Europe uh, as a matter of law, whether we see that in, in sort of English law contracts. I think that's sort of, you know, watch this space. Great. Well, it, it'll be interesting in a year from now, hopefully at an in-person Parallax meeting to revisit what has in fact transpired and as opposed to what we've just theorized in terms of uh, our crystal ball. So thank you all. I think this has been a very interesting discussion and look forward to seeing you all in person at some point in time. So thanks everyone. Have a terrific day and uh, thanks to everyone who's ho hopefully watching this and hopefully it's been useful to folks. Okay. Thank you, Laurie. Thank you, Laurie. Thank you, Laurie.